participatory politics has historically been the way in which the Venezuelan state has conditioned the access of popular sectors to public action and public good. Participation in contemporary Venezuela. For years, it was one of the preeminent legacies of Chavismo and the Bolivarian Revolution. By fostering and empowering popular and working class sectors, a new answer to the old age question about politics was identified in Venezuela. Who gets what, when and how? To answer this, we are grateful to have Yoleti Bracho with us. Yoleti is a PhD candidate in political science at the Université Lumière Lyon II where she is currently writing her dissertation on participatory public policies during the Chavez era in Venezuela. We hope to unpack the ins and outs of the cornerstone of revolutionary ethos in Venezuela. And of course, welcome Yoleti to today's episode of Veneco. Yoleti, how are you? Thank you so very much for being with us. Thank you very much for having me. Yoleti, I've been wanting to do an episode on the theme of participatory democracy in Venezuela for some time. And as we were discussing just earlier, we've had some wonderful guests that have shed an important light on this issue. Uh, from Margarita Lopez Maya, Alejandro Velasco, Clifton Ross, and others. But this is your main area of expertise, so I believe we found the right guest. Can you begin by giving us more or less a background on participatory institutions prior to the Chavista governments in Venezuela? We know, for example, that participatory budgeting was a social experiment uh, exported from Brazil and implemented in the state of Bolivar and elsewhere in the late 1980s. How have these evolved throughout the Chavista era? I think, first of all, what one had to think about is that participatory politics it became an international norm that was promoted um, by international institutions like the World Bank. And so it became this, this norm that was promoted all around the world as a way to, one, solve what was considered a crisis in the representative democracy uh, system and also to approach world poverty. Uh, it was the way to solve uh, poverty in a, in a democratic manner. And so, um, so this is very important to see that it was not only Venezuela or that Venezuela um, imported this, this model from Brazil. It was that there was this world effort to promote uh, this kind of government. But historically speaking, in Venezuela, there are participatory politics and devices that exist since what we call the democratic period or era, which um, begins in, the 19, in 1958 and even before. But that would be another discussion because during the um, dictatorship uh, before 1958, there were some participatory uh, devices that were uh, that were installed in, in, the, in the country. Uh, during the 20th, 20th century, um, we saw uh, different participatory devices in politics. Um, we called those devices juntas, what could translate to councils also. These juntas or councils, they used to have um, very strong ties with the parties that ruled what we call the Fourth Republic. So later on, these juntas uh, or councils, they became associations, what we called asociaciones de vecinos or uh, neighbors associations, uh, I think. <laughs> and so what happened at this, at this point is that the ties with the political parties were still strong, but there was somehow like a class change. Things that before the juntas, 
were had a really good an important relationship with popular neighborhoods and then the asociaciones de vecinos used to have um much uh, more a, a bigger relationship with middle class neighborhoods and uh, and and populations these um participatory devices had strong ties with the um, with the presidency of venezuela because historically speaking participatory politics in venezuela have always been related to the um gabinete de presidencia i wouldn't know how to say that in english i'm sorry um and so what one can see when the chavista governments came uh, to be it's so well first of all uh, we changed the the names so we go from juntas to council to communal councils and comunas or communes and this transformation it's supposed to be very political because um the chavista governments gave uh, these participatory devices an important role in the promotion of well, of what was called the 21st century socialism so the thing is that this politics this public policy was supposed first of all to promote this socialist um i don't know way of being values uh, ideas but also it was supposed to help the chavista governments to reorganize the um, um power in in the country it would mean that we would start governing venezuela a little bit less uh with the help of municipalities and gobernaciones uh and those um administrations and more with the communal councils and the communes which would be able to reorganize uh the geography of politics it would mean that uh the chavista government had the at least said to have the uh, the idea of the will to govern with the communities or at the community level but it means that we have historically demand of of popular sectors in, and popular neighborhoods and popular um and working class populations we had demanded of them to get organized to give time to give effort to organize in 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 ways very regulated by the state following um structures proposed by the state so juntas councils etc and we have demanded of them to organize in that way so that they would become legitimate to talk to the state and don't and then to relate to the state and then to ask access to uh welfare state goods which means that we have also somehow conditioned their citizenship i i don't know if it is ironic or not but things that it means that we have asked of those who have the most um precarious situations to work more to have the same that other citizens normally have and i say normally because we know what's the situation today in venezuela and, and we know that access to public goods is not very it's not assured but we have conditioned the relationship between the state and the working class people to these participatory policies fascinating i mean that's why things like the mesas técnicas del agua and other institutions were created in the first place so so, so tell us a little bit about uh, a little more about your research i know that you have yet to finish your dissertation but i'm also very curious about what you've found in the communities that you've examined so uh, tell us what does your research entail 
Yeah, so, um, well, first of all, my research, um, I started uh, my research trying to explore participatory politics in Venezuela, maybe with uh, somehow an idealistic idea, idealistic view of how uh, great I thought it was that uh, citizens were a part of the decision-making process in order to govern the country, the neighborhood, society. And so obviously when you go closer to the reality, you see the limits of those uh, ideas, of those ideals. And what I, was, what I became interested in was that I saw that when I went to the, to the working class neighborhoods and when I went to the um, uh, ministries or other um, public uh, bureaus, I used to see more or less the same people that were going around those places. And so I thought to myself, well, those people that are in, in, one, in one side, they're participating and the other side, they seem to be the organizers of the participation from the public system. Who are they? And why is it that they have like this, both of these roles? And so what I saw is that, um, what I finally saw is that uh, there is like a continuum between what we call collective action or contentious action and public action, policy and administration. And so what I, what I want to do is to follow these actors that go from the neighborhoods to the public offices and, and so on. And the, par- the particular thing about these actors is that when you, when you go to talk to them and when you go to see who they are, they're going to say, we are activists, we are social activists, we are political activists, we are left-wing activists and what we are doing is assuring that there is a link between the working class neighborhoods and the state and the Venezuelan state in order to put in place a revolution. For these people, the revolution was possible if and only if the state would actually uh, be in contact, in direct contact with the working class people in Venezuela, with El Pueblo, and if the Pueblo became an actor in the state. And so they, uh, they gave their time, their efforts, and their activism to this goal. And so what I actually study is how left-wing activists from different lefts in Venezuela, they became related to the Chavista governments. They became public employees in the participatory politics and therefore became the intermediaries between the public administrations promoting participation and the popular neighborhoods, with, which were the target of this public uh, policy, of this participatory policy. One of the main conclusions or one of the main ideas of this research is that the divide between uh, state and society, as we all know, is somehow fluid. And, um, and politics, it's not a big word, not, neither in the social um, uh, area, neither in the public policy area. Politics go all around those dynamics. And these activists, they, they bring politics to both sides of, the, of society. So there appears to be important distinctions as far as, uh, let's say, community involvement in urban popular sectors and those seen in rural areas in Guarico, Apure, Yaracuy, and elsewhere outside of the big metropolitan areas, like, for example, Caracas, Maracaibo, Valencia, etc. 
Which participatory mechanisms stand out as successful grassroots initiatives? How do the successes of these vary across urban-rural lines? Um, well, so first of all, what I should say is that I actually studied uh, most of all the urban areas. So I have less knowledge of those rural areas. But being uh, the urban areas and mostly being in Caracas, which is you know, the capital and also the center of politics in Venezuela, I met people that were promoting participatory policies uh, on the rural areas. And so through this experience, what I would say is that the success of a participatory mechanism or device depends, I think, less on if it is a rural or, a, or an urban area. And it depends more on, first of all, uh, the device itself, how is it conceived and how it works. And then on the action of these intermediaries and how they are able to promote participation where they go. And so this is why these activists that are the intermediaries of participation, we can call them also participation promoters because they actually work in promoting participation. And so uh, the participatory devices themselves, they're very demanding because to be able, for example, to um, build up a communal council or a commune, you have to do lots of uh, bureaucratic process. I mean, you have to fill up lots of forms. You have to do uh, sometimes uh, research in your neighborhood to ask people about information that you have to gather in order to do an inventory of what, what are the needs and what are the, 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 the demands of your neighborhood. Uh, you have to be able to reunite people, do assemblies, elect representatives, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the devices themselves uh, that were uh, built by the Chavista governments were very excellent, socially excellent, demanding. And so the capacities and knowledges to be able to put in place those devices and, and to, be, to be able to put up a communal council or a commune, they're not evenly distributed in society. And so it depends, I think, less on if it is in a rural place or in an urban place. But if you have the people who are able to uh, respond to those bureaucratic demands from the state. Secondly, it is very important, the action of these intermediaries or participation promoters, because those are the people that actually go to the participatory target, which are historically working class people. And they go there, they go to the neighborhoods, they go to the rural areas, and they help people to put up and to build up these participatory devices. So, so they go help people to fill the forms. They go help, help people to do the inquiries and to ask for uh, in, in their neighborhoods uh, what, which are the needs and blah, blah, blah. And most of all, these participation promoters, they actually went to the urban and rural areas not only because they, they did it because of their activism or their engagement with the revolution, but because the Chavista government employed them to do so. And so from the uh, Ministry of Comunas and from one of its antennas, which is uh, Funda Comunal, activists from left-wing uh, left -wing activists were employed to actually go and promote participatory devices. They were paid to go with this, uh, with the with the working class people, and do the work 
to be able to to build up these communal councils and and communes. So I think the role of those people is very important and central to analyze when does a participatory policy succeeds or not. More than analyzing rural or urban device and thinking about how a participatory device actually works in one situation or the other, um, one had to actually pay attention to how the device was conceived and who's promoting the device. So you mentioned just now um, some challenges to these participatory initiatives and a common criticism of these uh, processes. And I just read it in Margarita Lopez Maya's new book, but Clifton Ross also pointed it out on this show, is that people in popular neighborhoods are reluctant to participate in the collective solving of their problems because they would rather spend their free time doing things they enjoy. Some who point to this claim also say these reluctant communities are ultimately subject to hyper-politicization of participatory practices that can become exclusionary over time. And I would point uh, to the CLAP program uh, as an example. Is this something you have observed or do you even agree with this criticism? Well, first of all, I would, I would have to say that one, have to be, one has to be um, careful with the... I think the normative charge of this criticism, working class or not, anybody is has the right <laughs> to participate or not, and or to give uh, or to take their time, their free time, to do anything else than that solving problem. Um, what I what I mean is that participation, it's a public policy. It's a state that demands participation from its citizens. And this is very. Uh, this is tied to the idea of this conditioning to uh, to the access to the welfare state for working class people to participation, because one could ar- could argue that any citizen's problem should be solved by the state, even if that citizen uh, work- participates on those mechanisms or not. Getting engaged in participatory policy it it demands time and efforts. It demands work. So it means time, effort, time that you're not giving to, I don't know, your household or your family or your friends or whatever. And so I, I, I sometimes I, I, I joke about this by saying that my dad that uh, lives in a middle class uh, neighborhood in Caracas, well, before when he had a problem with, I don't know, electricity, he used, he used to call the, um, the electricity company. He said that he had a problem. And normally the problem was solved in a few hours or whatever. People that have the, the that are the same age as my father, but that live in La Vega or on the 23 de Enero or Cater or whatever, when they had an electricity problem, they had to reunite, do an assembly, uh, put up a statement, go and ask to a public employee something, or, may, or sometimes even kidnap public employees to have answers from the state. So. Let's be careful of what we are actually demanding and criticizing when we criticize the non-working uh, class participation to participatory politics. And last of all, we also have to be careful when we think that working class people's participation would be more inclined to get politicized than any other people's participation. I mean, given the fact that uh, participatory politics is a uh, public policy, It contains a 
political view of the society, a political view of how one should govern. There is no, there is no uh, neutral participatory policies. There are no neutral participatory policies. And so when the Venezuelan state, governed by the Chavistas or not, issues for a participatory policy, it issues a political view of how society should work. And this, is, um, this has effects if anybody that would participate not, would participate and not only on working class people participating. They're not more, more subject to inf political influence from the state and the government than other parts of the society. Every part of the society is influenced by the political actors of the society. It is important to have like these main ideas clear before going into what actually happens with participatory policies in the Chavista governments. And so the Chavista government gave very political significance uh, meanings to these uh, devices and to these uh, mechanisms and to these policies. And so the Chavista government had the, the will to change the way Venezuelan is governed through the participatory mechanism, communal, communal, uh, communal councils, communes, and etc. So it was obviously very political, and it was also used, and we've seen it, to control and to cope uh, political actors in the in the society and also in working class neighborhoods. And the harsh effects of this uh, control or cooptation are very, very visible with the CLAP because the CLAP is sadly a great example of what it means to link a participatory device with the needs of survival and a very hierarchical organization of participation. And so as we see, you know, the CLAP came about more or less after the uh, very harsh scarcity periods beginning at around, I don't know, 2014, more or less. Even though I, I mean, my, my main research was already done, but what I could see afterwards with the club is that it was much more hierarchical and much more rigid than the communal councils and the communes. And also it had less space for discussing political matters like, I don't know, uh, popular rights and laws and and, uh, and even if international politics and much more space for saving the revolution no matter what, if we follow the government's ideas. The, the fact that the, the participatory uh, policies and devices were very sharp politically, it's very visible during the um, electoral periods because uh, during electoral periods, we have seen sadly um, menaces from, for people who are engaging in the participatory um, devices, that their, their capacity to participate or to benefit from those participatory devices would be also conditioned to their vote to also condition their access to those participatory devices. Um, well, but I, I would conclude just saying that even though this, is, uh, this reality is it's there, one has to pay attention to power relationships inside of those devices, because those devices, they're inside, they're also like, um, there are power struggles and, and, and battles 
inside of them to know who's going to rule them, who know who's going to actually be the, the, the face of one council and etc. I'm glad you mentioned that because that's actually a good segue into my next question because uh, you were talking just now how, especially in working class neighborhoods, how there are different views and aspirations as far as how society should be organized. Uh, but there, there are also power dynamics. So I'm curious, for example, if you have been able to examine within your research the relationship between PESUV-aligned community councils, the Consejos Comunales, and local governments where the political opposition has won municipalities and governorships. And I mean, I know right now there are not many, but let's say, for example, a decade ago, we know, for example, that the opposition Causa R party was one of the pioneers of participatory practices decades ago. But there are also more recent examples in Petare and other popular neighborhoods. What can you tell us about these? Do you believe these institutions born out of the Chavista era could outlive a potential end to revolutionary rule? Well, first of all, what I have to say is that when I studied um, participatory policies in Venezuela, I actually never studied a communal council or a commune that was in an opposition municipality. So I, I, I must say that's a limit of my own work. I mean, my, the main part of my research was done in the Libertador municipality, which was ruled by the Chavista. So I actually didn't much observe those situations. I mean, what I think I could answer most of all, your last question, the, the, the one that's uh, asking about what's the future of participatory devices and policies in a hypothetical uh, after Chavista or after, after PES-UV uh, PES uh, era. And so what I actually think is that participatory policies and mechanisms will remain. This is a fact that I think it's, it's not much very hard to see because of a few factors. Um, first of all, we have already seen opposition municipalities in which participatory devices have been put in place obviously with other names, with other colors, but there are opposition municipalities that have actually continued that the participatory policies. And also because, as I said before, um, participation as a way to govern, it is still today an international norm that is still promoted by international organizations. And also, it's a very important way for local level governments around the world to access investments from those international organizations to build their projects. And so we see all around the world how local governments put, put in place participatory policies and devices, and then they get access to international investments so they can continue ruling and doing their projects in the, in this, at this local level. Um, so this continues and it will continue even if Chavista, uh, the Chavista government continues or not. Also, it is, I think it's very important is that even though today we discuss a lot and with reason about the legitimacy of the Chavista symbols and ideas and, and, and etc., there's still an important Chavista claim in Venezuelan society. And so people in Venezuela are still tied um, and engaged uh, in saying that their 
chavistas. I mean, there are still people in Venezuela suffering from all of the hardship that we know today in Venezuela that claim themselves chavistas. And by claiming themselves chavistas, they also claim themselves as el pueblo, the people who have the power. And so I think Venezuelan society will still demand for participation. It's not only that the state will still use participation as a tool for governing, it's also that Venezuelan people will still demand participation as a way to be a citizen. So I know you mentioned your field research concluded right around 2014, but I wanted to move a little towards contemporary participatory practices in the Nicolás Maduro era. What is the current state of some of these grassroots-led projects? And I ask because in the last few years, uh, we have seen a transformation of the Venezuelan economy into what some are calling the bodegón economy, one that is boosting privatizations, dollarization, and in many ways, it could be argued that that in a way it has sidelined collective efforts. Community-led projects do, however, persist. What can you tell us about these? There are a few, a few ideas that come to mind. Uh, first is that the Maduro government still promotes participation. There are still um, participatory devices that, that are functioning because the Nicolás Maduro government still uh, promotes it. And I want to be clear about something, um, and this is well known by academia. Even in um, authoritarian uh, situations, there are participatory policies. And one can see that, for example, in China, which uh, is a very good example of, um, of how, I mean, the Communist, uh, the Communist Party in China actually promotes participatory devices and policies. Obviously, they're, they're restricted, they're very well uh, followed and engineered, but they exist. Um, this doesn't mean that authoritarian rulers promote participation to to become more democratic or not. It's just that these are a way of ruling. And so you can also rule with participation policies within an authoritarian context. So the authoritarian context in Venezuela, uh, under Maduro, you can still see um, participatory devices and mechanisms. So they continue. We still see uh, communal councils uh, functioning. We still see communes functioning. Second, um, there are uh, some of these grassroots projects that do not necessarily follow the models that were installed by the Chavista governments, that were organizations that existed before, that claimed themselves revolutionary or anarchist or, I don't know, I mean, so many things grassroots organizations that existed before Chavismo, that when the Chavismo came to be, they into the participatory policies, and then they became the promoters of the communal councils and the communes. And that given the fact that they are now uh, moving away from the Maduro government, they leave behind the communal councils and the communes and all of those forms to once again become just grassroots organization as they used to be. So what I'm trying to say is that the participatory policies, um, they may move, but the grassroots uh, organizations, they, they're also very strategic about how they relate to these 
participatory policies and when they leave them, if they think or they feel that they're not answering to their demands or their problems. And so what I think it's a very important new or recent dynamic that I think has not been very studied up until today is how those grassroots organizations that once became communal councils or communes, or not became, but at least used them as a way to continue their, their activities, are now leaving behind those participatory forms that were promoted from the state to integrate participatory uh, policies that are actually being put in place by the humanitarian sector. And so now what we are seeing is how the grassroots organizations are working with the humanitarian actors that came to be in Venezuela since, uh, I don't know, a few years ago, like five or six years. So I think this is a very, very big transformation because I, I've seen, I mean, um, I know people from my own research in, in places like La Vega, for example, that he ha have historically organized as a grassroots organization that have, had had a very important uh, role in organizing the barrio that later on claimed themselves Chavistas and, though, and therefore helped building the communal councils and had very important um, places in those uh, these mechanisms and that are now leaving those behind, leaving also the Nicolas Maduro government behind or even becoming opponents to that government and going to seek for what they need to answer the needs of their neighborhoods in this humanitarian economy. Right now, at the grassroots level, at the local grassroots, grassroots and working class level in Venezuela, what we're seeing is a, like a battle, like a transformation between not, I think it, the, the, I mean, the bodygon, the bodygon economy is very present, obviously. But the humanitarian economy, it's starting to become a, a central uh, factor for these uh, parts of the population. And I think that's one of the transformations that we have to keep an eye on. There is a big difference when it, it is the state that promotes participation and when it's a humanitarian actor that does it. The role that politics will um, place in in those different dynamics is not the same. And when you are a citizen that participating in a, in a participatory device promoted by the state, even if it is limited, you st you're still a citizen. When you are participating in a participatory device promoted by a humanitarian actor, you're a beneficiary. It's not the same. And I think this is important to keep an eye on. That's very interesting. And I would point to the case of Acción Solidaria and other NGOs that have some done that, that have done some very important work. So I guess those are something to keep an eye on. But finally, Yoletti, I'm going to bother you with one last question. And because this is a podcast on social movements in Venezuela, I'm curious about your thoughts for the future and promise of grassroots movements in the country. We know that current conditions have become perhaps more difficult to address the demands of movements, whether it's the feminist movement, indigenous groups, or labor unions. But what we do know is that Nicolás Maduro has been trying to push this idea of the communal state, el Estado Comunal. We also recently saw the passage of the Ley de Ciudades Comunales. 
And I'm wondering whether you think, um, or better yet, in what ways is the communal state, how do you think it's going to incorporate the needs and demands of social movements in Venezuela? Well, <laughs> that's a hard one. <laughs> I think, first of all, um, the relationship between the state and social movements, it will always be contentious. And if I am honest, I wish it stays that way. Um, because what one wants from social movements, it's for them to demand of the state uh, what it should uh, do or be to be able to give people a good context for their lives. But the Nicolas Maduro authoritarian government has distanced itself from those grassroots organizations and actors that used to claim themselves Chavistas and that used to be the main support for the Chavista governments historically. And so I, I, I have been seeing, even though if, if my research formally ended uh, in 2016, I have been seeing since how actors that used to support uh, the, the Maduro government in the, at the beginning have distanced themselves from the Maduro government, either because um, they have lost their capacity to discuss, connect to this government, or because they have been also punished and reprimidos. Who can know? Recently, we have seen people from, well, what is called the so civil society, have reunions with uh, the, the Maduro government in order to strategically present democratic demands to this government. They have been very criticized, but as other scholars, I actually think that this is necessary because you have to discuss to the one that's actually ruling the country. It's important to say that not everyone in the social movements in Venezuela claim themselves being a part of civil society, but they claim themselves to be a part of the organized society. And so, which is very, very interesting is that I feel that now we're focusing mostly on those actors that claim themselves being a part of the civil society and their work, it's great and it's important and, it's, and I hope it, we, can, we can support it. But we shouldn't uh, forget that in other parts of the country, in other neighborhoods, in other parts of society, There are other people that have historically organized, that are still organizing, and that are still asking for a better life that, ironically, they do not have any more um, media, way, uh, line to discuss with the government and with the, and with the state, even though those people and those organizations were once one of the main actors of the main actors that supported the Chavista governments. Yoletti, you have been very kind with your time and I know we are on very different time schedules. Uh, you're in France, I'm in Washington, D.C. So I just have to say a big thank you for speaking with us. Uh, this has been a fascinating chat and I'm very much looking forward to continue to read up on your work in the future. And of course, very best of luck on your dissertation and finishing your doctoral degree. We need more people with uh, this kind of academic background and, of course, more guests on Veneco who can speak about participatory democracy in Venezuela. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you for the invitation. <laughs> That was Violetti Bracho. 
PhD candidate in political science at the Université Lumière Lyon 2 in France. Her research focuses on participatory public policies during the Chavista era in Venezuela. And if you like my chat with Yoletti, please be sure to leave us a rating on Spotify or a comment or sign of appreciation wherever you hear your podcasts. This was episode 12 of Veneco Podcast, and my name is Juan Andrés Misley.